Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Proceed with caution. Confusing reports on the Delta variant and mixed numbers on the economy make us think again about that rush to reopen. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And the markets this week seem to reflect all of it. The hope with stronger than expected jobs numbers out on Friday, taking the S&P 500 to record highs, as well as the trepidation, with the Nasdaq actually down on Friday a bit, even though it was overall up a bit for the week. And the 10-year yield struggled to get back to 1.3 after falling as low as 1.13 earlier in the week. To help us put this all together, we have with us David Kelly, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Chief Global Strategist, and Laura Tyson, professor at the Haas School of Business at University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Tyson served as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. So, Dr. Tyson, thank you so much for being with us. Give us a sense of how you interpreted those employment numbers. It seemed to be strong pretty much across the board, but did it take into account the Delta variant? Well, it was strong, and I certainly think it's important to look at the three-month average. If you look at the three-month average of adding 800,000 uh, 800, jobs a, a month, those are strong numbers and, and show continued strengthening of the labor market. That's the first thing. The second thing is it is true that a lot of the employment growth in July was what I would call in-person activities. It was leisure, retail hospitality, people going to restaurants, people going out to personal services. What is a little unclear, and, and by the way, also education. What is a little unclear is what is the course of Delta going into the fall, and will that slow that momentum for those kinds of jobs and services down? 
And I think that's a legitimate question. And I'm not sure we don't we don't know the answer. Therefore, I think that's one of the reasons why the market is saying hard to interpret, hard to interpret. Oh, so let's go to the markets, actually, David. Uh, it's over to you here on what happened, because when I came in and looked at the numbers, I thought, boy, these are great numbers. The markets are really going to go up. They didn't go up that much. It was mixed. In fact, the Nasdaq was down a little bit. Is that because, as Laura said, this is some doubts about Delta variant, or is it really fear that the, it may cause the Fed to increase rates sooner? Hmm. I don't really think it's either of those. I mean, the markets are very, very high. I mean, we've been going up for a very long time. We, we are, you know, for these heights, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to justify moving up quickly from here. But on the Delta variant, I mean, I, I, look, I know the, the virus is mutating. But you know what? In some ways, the economy is mutating also. I think it is really interesting that, uh, you know, we had a huge crash in the economy last year and then, a, and then a rebound in the third quarter. But every quarter since then, we've grown. We've, we're on our fourth wave of COVID here, but the economy is really adapting to it. So I do think the Delta variant will slow things down a little bit over the next uh, month or two. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, hopefully it'll peak and come down again. But, you know, as I look at the economy, it looks like people are adapting to it. Yes, we're going to have to we're going to get much more serious about vaccine mandates. You know, you want to work here, you've got to have a vaccine. We're going to get more serious about wearing masks. But it's not going to stop people from reopening the schools or getting back to doing the things they want to do. We're just going to have to do them in a different way. But I have, I have confidence, you know, yeah, the virus mutates, but we mutate too. And I think the economy is actually going to keep on growing through this. So, so Laura, so, back to you. What does that mm -hmm. say to the Fed and monetary policy as a practical matter? Because I think what I just heard from David is we're learning to adapt yeah. to it. It's not going to be as robust right. as we thought. It'll be more tempered. But does that mean actually the Fed can be a bit more lenient with monetary policy longer? So, I, I, look, I think the Fed is, it was very clear you, you had a comment from Vice Chair Clarida, but we also had a comment last week from uh, Jerome Powell, and basically what they're saying is that right now, given the advanced guidance they continue to estimate, they continue to issue um, with a goal of maximum employment and a long-run target of inflation of 2% with some overshoot for some period of time, yeah, the, the, the conditions in the economy, I think, continue to indicate that, that meeting those conditions may sometimes may occur sometime in 2022 or early 2023. I don't think there's any news here in this report which would suggest what the Fed has been saying. The Fed has believes, and I believe, that most of the significant increase in inflation over the past few months has been the result of transitory factors. Those factors will die out. And we will end up with a perhaps a somewhat higher inflation rate, over 2%, but not much. And that will be consistent with the Fed's guidance on what its policy is going to be. So, David, does that mean the sky's the limit as far as equities are concerned? Because it seems like almost no matter what happens, equity markets just go up. Uh, how much of that is just supported by the Fed as opposed to fundamental underlying growth? Well, I think a lot of it is. But, of course, the Federal Reserve has been fueling um, asset price increases all over the place for years, really for a decade now. And my real mm -hmm. concern is not so much the Fed is fueling inflation, but is just causing asset prices to rise much faster than the economy overall. And that could cause um, asset bubbles or generalized asset bubbles. So I think the Federal Reserve needs to begin to normalize. I agree with Laura. I don't think that we're, going to, we're looking at hyperinflation or, or very high inflation. I think most of it's transitory. But we have seen big increases in asset prices. And I'm, you know, I think what's going on is these very low interest rates are fueling a lot of nefarious things in the economy that we really don't want to see. You know, very high increases in home prices, a lot of speculative assets 
and you're drawing money in. So I think the Federal Reserve really needs to think about normalizing. And they also have to think about timetables here. You're supposed to get ahead of this, not, not react late to it. So I, I'm worried that they're, they're taking too much time uh, getting to tapering and talking about raising interest rates from essentially zero levels in an economy which is really barreling towards full employment. That's former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Laura Tyson, and David Kelly from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Coming up, we hear from legendary investor Leon Cooperman. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week saw another chapter in the drama of Washington, with the Senate apparently getting closer to a major bipartisan infrastructure package coming on top of over $5 trillion in fiscal stimulus already pumped in the system and more on the way if Democrats have their way. Leon Kuberman has been a key investor for many years, first at Goldman Sachs and then as head of his own firm, Omega Advisors. And we welcome him now to Wall Street Week. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so many people look to you for investment advice. I've heard you described as a fully invested bear. Could you tell us what that means and why? Yeah, well, let me first say, you know, it's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I was on with Louis Lukaiser on the, on the initial Wall Street Week four or five times, this is a lot more convenient. You know, I'm sitting in my home <laughs> in New Jersey and I didn't have to travel to Owens Mills, Maryland. So it's a pretty painless experience. Fully invested bear is uh, explained by the fact that it's a cyclical and secular outlook. The cyclical conditions are not uh, uh, suggestive of a bear market. You know, basically bear markets don't uh, come about through immaculate conception. They come about for certain fundamental reasons. Number one, accelerating problematic inflation. We're heading in that direction. We're not there yet, mainly because the Fed speak. Uh, a hostile Fed, which you don't have. In fact, I'm critical of the Fed, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, an oncoming recession, we're just coming out of recession, uh, or a exuberantly braced price market. And I have to say, even though I'm conservative in my outlook, I have to admit the stock market has been very self-corrective. The area of the market has been most exploited and overvalued has had a very big decline. So cyclically, the conditions for big decline are present, and that explains my positive view. My long-term concerns are, I think, we're kind of barring from the future. You know, uh, Laura Tyson's a very distinguished economist. I know she's still listening, but I would say if I lined up 100 economists and asked them, what is the potential real growth of the U.S. economy, the response would be centered around 2% real. And that's be a function of uh, labor force growth, which is about a half of 1% per annum, 
and productivity growth was about one and a half percent per annum. So that determines real growth in any economy. So two percent real, if you're an economic bull, you say two and a half. If you're bear, you say one and a half. Add to that about two percent for inflation. So nominal GDP grows four percent. Uh, we have real growth this year of four times potential, yet the Fed is holding interest rates near zero. Makes no sense to me. I, I, I understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, but I think it's going to have a bad end to it. Secondly, you just referenced it a minute ago. You know, we've already injected into the economy a trillion dollars of stimulus in excess of wages lost, yet they're trying to do another two or three trillion on top of that. And so, you know, this nation was founded 245 years ago. We had no national debt. Three years ago, it was about 20 trillion. I think now it's knocking the door at 28 trillion. And it's growing at a rate far in excess of the growth rate of the economy. And when this party ends, basically, it's not going to end well. And nobody knows when it's going to end. You know, Socrates around, I think, 400 BC said he was the wisest man alive. He knows one thing, and that is, I know nothing. And then a few thousand years later, Warren Buffett said, forecasts of the future tell you more about the forecast than they tell you about the future. So we're all guessing, but I think we have a bad end to this. I think we've been borrowing from the future. I, I think bonds are totally, totally mispriced. You know, if I told you historically that 10 U.S. government bond is yielded in line with nominal GDP. So let's say nominal GDP on a trend basis grows at 4%. So that would imply a 4% 10-year bond. Okay, this year, I think in the third quarter, nominal GDP is expected to grow at 13%. Yet we have a 1.3% 10-year government bond rate. You're an investor, you pay taxes, you keep 60% of the 1.3. Uh, that's what, 78 basis points, called 80 basis points. The inflation rate is running 4 or 5%. So, you know, stocks make all the sense in the world relative to bonds, but bonds make no sense. And I think the Fed is overstaying their position. And that, and that bothers me greatly. So, I also am troubled by the uh, shift to the left that's taking place in the country. You know, uh, 30% of the young people today think socialism is the preferred system to capitalism. They don't have a clue. My good buddy, who I admire greatly, Ken Langone, says it well. He'd like to put a bunch of people on his private plane, fly them to Venezuela, Cuba, and let them see what socialism is all about. So, so let me ask you one specific question. If you're putting money to work right now, how do you take into account the fact that, some, as some people have said, the referee is now playing in the game, whether it's on the monetary policy side or the, or the fiscal policy side? You referred to long-term growth patterns, but thus far the government, and this, by the way, is true under President Trump as well, I could argue, gooses up the nominal growth rate by really intervening. Absolutely. Trump was no hero. In my opinion, we were running a trillion-dollar deficit in early 2020, um, while he was president, and we had a fully employed economy. Well, really what happened is prior, prior to COVID hitting, the unemployed, when there's about five and a half million people, it ballooned to 23 million people um, and uh, uh, at the peak, and now we're down to about 8 million. And we're conducting fiscal monetary policy with the idea of getting unemployment back down to where it was pre-COVID. It's a, you know, not a worthwhile objective, but I think the combination a very stimulative fiscal monetary policy, it will turn out to be problematic. So, so Lee, let me ask you one last question here, which goes to a fundamental issue for right, our audience, which is no historically, historically, the best and the brightest have gone to Wall Street. Is that still true, or is Wall Street struggling to attract the best talent these days because they're going off to other sources, including tech as well as maybe biotech? I don't know. Uh, in all honesty, David, I've always advocated, I do a lot of speaking to young people and high school and colleges, and I tell them the only way to be successful is to do what you love and love what you do. 
So, you know, don't go into a field to make a lot of money. Go into a field because you have a passion for it. And I think Wall Street's a place where uh, I love every minute I worked there. I had a great 25-year run at Goldman Sachs, terrific firm. I had a great run at Omega for another 25 years. And then in uh, 2018, I decided to, uh, I tell everybody I'm like uh, Hyman Roth in Godfather 2. You know, I saw the movie 100 times, but there's a scene at the airport right before they shoot him. He professes to be a retired executive living on a pension. I'm a retired money manager living on investment income. The bad news is they have no active income, no wages, no salaries. Uh, the, uh, you know, all my income is dividends and interest. I have enough of it. Don't worry about me. Uh, and the good news is I have no pressure. So at age 78, uh, I decided to swap pressure for income. Uh, you know, pressure uh, for income. Less pressure, more income. I like to make money because my goal is to give it away, and I like to have more money to give away. Uh, but uh, basically, I love what I'm doing. So uh, Wall Street will get its share of good people, and the legal profession is going to get its share of good people. And, you know, money goes where money's treated best. But I think the way to be successful is to go where you have a passion, and, uh, you know, uh, and that's kind of what got me to Wall Street. I, I just, yeah. I look at my career and I say, right. you know, um, right. uh, it was uh, yeah. uh, luck, hard work, and intuition that made for my success. Luck, the, hard work, and intuition. That's Omega Family Office Chairman Leon Cooperman. Coming up, the CEO of True America, Robert Hart, on the extension of the eviction moratorium. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Millions of Americans were exposed to possible eviction because of the pandemic, but were protected by Congress. When that moratorium on evictions lapsed, then they were exposed, along with hundreds of thousands of landlords. The CDC this week stepped in and imposed a new moratorium, but the issue still remains. And we turn now to Bob Hart. He is the CEO of True America Multifamily, which manages some 47,000 units around the country. So, Bob, thank you so much. Welcome to Wall Street Week. Good to have you here. Give us a sense about this industry, because some of us may not have followed that closely. How many people really are behind on their rent? How many people do you have in your units who are behind? Well, David, um, there's quite a number of people in America that are behind right now. It's about 15% of the total renter population of about 44 million households and either they're currently behind or they have some past due form of rent. Um, however, the situation has improved uh, for many, many of us because more people are working as the economy has improved. And I think if you look at current statistics, uh, it's probably less than 5% of the renter population that is currently not paying either because you're choosing not to pay due to the eviction moratorium, or they simply cannot pay. So the situation has improved, but there is a lot of past due rent that's affecting particularly the small landlord. The corporate landlords are hurting as well, but to the extent uh, that this problem is really harshly affecting the small landlord that's deriving uh, passive income or, or retirement income from the rental of apartments. Congress has enacted various rental assistance programs. Uh, how much have they helped and why haven't they taken care of the problem? Uh, it just began a few months ago. Uh, the programs have traveled from the federal government to the state government down to local government and the administration lies with local government. So it's spotty. 
in California, we have areas like Sacramento that are doing really, really well. Orange County that's doing really well in paying folks. Los Angeles City, not so much. It depends on the local jurisdiction. So there's a lot of hope, but the landlord has to do the work. The landlord has to work with the individual household and get them to cooperate with the submission of an application to the municipal authority in order to get in line. And then you have to get in line after that and wait. Is it your impression this is a timing issue, as we might say in business, or a fundamental issue? That is to say, the $47 billion has been appropriate. I think 3 or $4 billion has been spent. When it comes out, that's going to really address much of the problem? I think it will address a lot of the past due problem and a little bit of the current problem. It's not a permanent solution. We've got to get people back to work, and we've got to get into a normalized economic situation as far as rentership goes. And we are moving in that direction because more and more people are paying their rent. So the headlines always talk about the folks that aren't, but we have to remember that over 90% of the people are paying their rent. They are protecting their livelihoods, their households, and their families, and they're doing the right thing. As I listen to you and as I read about this, it sounds like this is a somewhat troubled business right now. Is investing in and owning rental units right now, is that a good business? If you read the headlines, you would say it's not, but there's really two different worlds. The investment world uh, seems to be running counter to, uh, to the headlines and multifamily investment is extremely robust in the country right now because the landlords and the corporate owners and folks believe that things will normalize, things have improved, rents are going up in certain areas uh, and the business model is very, very sound uh, so the investment climate is quite robust. What makes it a good business? Uh, is it a cash business? That is to say, you don't have to invest very much more. You can sort of uh, really re- receive rents ongoing from the current investment. What's always made uh, apartments a good business is what you just said, the durability of the cash flow streams. Uh, people can invest 20 or 30 percent of the value of a building and borrow at, at rates today that are very, very attractive. Uh, fixed rate loans are in the sub 4% range and variable rate loans are as low as 3% or even lower. And if they can buy uh, at a uh, cash on cash return of say five or 6%, they're making a spread in their money, rents do grow, and there is economic benefits through depreciation and other factors that improve that durability of cash flow over a long period of time. And finally, Bob, uh, are you seeing inflation? Because we hear some economists concerned about the possibility of rising housing prices, uh, both on the ownership side but on the rental side. Are you seeing that in your units? Are you raising prices? We are. We are trying to do so thoughtfully because we don't want to price out the renter, but we're facing uh, higher labor costs, higher cost of goods uh, when we're renovating and so forth. So we are, in fact, seeing Uh, core inflation. It's not spiraling, but we are seeing inflation. Okay, Bob, thank you so very much. Really appreciate you being with us today on Wall Street Week. That is Bob Hart. He is CEO of True America. Coming up, staffing the Fed. We ask our special contributor, Larry Summers, about what leadership the Fed needs going forward as President Biden considers whether to make some changes at the top. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. No one ever said that the job of Fed chair is an easy one. But when Jay Powell moved up to the big chair, he couldn't have known that he'd be faced with a pandemic, an economy brought to an abrupt stop, and that he'd have to step in and help save the day by keeping the financial system alive while lawmakers worked out a series of stimulus packages. We are deploying these lending powers to an unprecedented extent enabled in large part by the financial backing from the Congress and the Treasury. It was President Obama who first named Powell to the Fed board back in 2012, and then President Trump who elevated him to be chair in 2017. Accordingly, it is my pleasure and my honor to announce my nomination of Jerome Powell to be the next chairman of the Federal Reserve. Congratulations, Jay. I'm both honored and humbled by this opportunity to serve our great country. Powell's term as chair expires just over six months from now, in February 2022. And though he has been praised for his bold action on monetary stimulus when we needed it most, naming his own chair could give President Biden an opportunity to put his stamp on monetary policy in the only way he can, by choosing who will set that policy. My administration understands that if we were to ever experience unchecked inflation over the long term, that would pose a real challenge to our economy. The Fed is independent. It should take whatever steps it deems necessary to support a strong, durable economic recovery. And it's not just the Fed chair whom President Biden has the opportunity to choose. The terms for vice chairs Richard Clarida and Randall Quarles also expire in the coming months. And that's in addition to one vacancy on the seven-member board. Here's Clarida. There are risks to any outlook, and I do believe that the risks to my outlook for inflation are to the upside. It may not be monetary policy that will inform the president's decision. Some Democrats want tougher regulation of banks, more attention to climate change, and greater focus on reducing economic inequality. My concern is that over and over, he has weakened a regulation here. He has led the Fed to ease up there. He's led the Fed to help protect the biggest financial institutions. Uh, And there have been dissents against that. That's Senator Elizabeth Warren. One member of the board who has been an aggressive advocate for big bank oversight and has voiced her opposition to some of Powell's track record on regulation is Lael Brainerd. 
a number of common sense reforms can be put in place to address the unresolved structural vulnerabilities, particularly in non-bank financial intermediation and short-term funding markets. One of the shrewdest observers of the Federal Reserve has been Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, now at Harvard, and of course a special contributor right here at Wall Street Week. So uh, Larry, give us your sense as President Biden looks forward to the possibility of perhaps appointing the chair and two vice chairs of the Federal Reserve who, without regard to who it might be, whether the present people or others, what do we need? What are the issues the Fed's likely to have to address over the next three, four, five years? Look, the most fundamental choice the Fed's going to face involve monetary policy. They involve making judgments about the inflation risks uh, that I've expressed concern about going forward, whether those, whatever the right uh, view is. And they involve the monetary policy challenge of a long-run environment where we're going to have exceptionally low uh, real interest rates, at least if one looks at uh, markets and a variety of other uh, indicators. So I think it's the macroeconomic policy that's at the center of the Fed's responsibilities, and that's really the core task. Clearly, you need someone with a deep commitment uh, to a stable financial uh, system who understands that Dodd-Frank was a beginning and uh, not uh, an end. So for me, monetary policy followed closely by uh, financial uh, stability. Uh, I believe that it's government's job to deal with the environment it's government's job to deal with uh, social justice. And I don't think that trying to push those responsibilities uh, to the Fed uh, should be a uh, priority. So my hope is that it will be uh, someone who can provide guidance with the right wisdom and the right character on monetary policy and also on uh, the maintenance of uh, financial stability. Uh, so you mentioned first and foremost monetary policy. Uh, give us a sense of where we are right now in monetary policy. And let's be honest, most people talk right now about so-called tapering, when they start backing off of the bond purchases, and then eventually some interest rate raises. We just got this week new jobs numbers that were better than expected. The unemployment rate fell the lowest rate it's been since before the pandemic. Does that tell us anything about that question about monetary policy and tapering? Look, I think the Fed has misjudged the overheating risk. I think given that they have an instrument that operates with lags, given the level of inflationary pressure in our economy, given prospective growth and closure of the GDP gap, given the extent of inflation in the housing markets, given record levels of job openings, uh, I don't think they should be buying anything like $40 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities or $120 billion a month of uh, treasuries. What they are doing is shifting America's funding structure towards being shorter term rather than longer term. If there was ever a moment to be locking in long-term funding, I think it's uh, this moment. So I think the Fed should be moving with all deliberate speed to tapering. It should be signaling its concern about uh, overheating. It should be recognizing that uh, 
there may well need to be uh, a tightening uh, in terms of raising rates uh, well before what's now embodied in the dot plot or what's embodied in uh, market uh, expectations. So let's wrap up as we do every week with a rapid round of Summer Says. Got three of them for you this week, uh, Larry. First of all, cryptocurrency very much in the news all, in all sorts of different ways. But my question to you is, from where you sit, is the greater risk over-regulating cryptocurrency or under-regulating it? Greater risk is under-regulating it. If we regulate it right, uh, we'll protect uh, a lot of people. We'll be able to enforce against financial crime of various sorts. And ultimately, by regularizing and making more trustworthy uh, cryptocurrencies, will enable the benefits of cryptocurrency and the success of the cryptocurrency industry to grow. Okay, a second one, also much in the news this week, is Robinhood and what it means about retail investors. As you look at the overall financial system, is that more of a risk or more of an opportunity? It's on the one hand, democratizing it. On the other hand, there's a lot of volatility associated with it. We're seeing some version of the errors of the 1920s there. This is as clear a case for enhanced regulation as uh, I've uh, ever as I've ever seen, and we need much more serious uh, approaches to meme stocks, to the marketing of uh, stocks, to problematic uh, retail investors. Uh, this whole meme stock phenomenon is not going to end well. And finally, let's get back to employment. Uh, when do you think we will reach full employment at the rate we're going? I think we're pretty close, uh, David. Uh, if you look at job vacancies, we're at record levels, higher than we've ever been. If you look at the rate at which people are quitting, which is an indicator of how secure they feel in the labor market, that is at uh, historically uh, record uh, rates. If you take account of the fact that because of COVID and everybody's moving to different places and thinking differently about the kinds of jobs they're going to do and we're going to do them, we've got much more structural uh, change. I, I think we're not far uh, from uh, full employment and certainly the tendency of wage growth to be accelerating, especially when you adjust for the quality of uh, workers. Larry, thank you so very much. That's Larry Summers, our special Wall Street Week contributor and, of course, from Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Let's make a deal. Workers around the country are coming to terms slowly with the need to come back to the office as employers coax them back or just plain say they have to come back. But it turns out that for a whole lot of us, we sort of like the idea of working from home if we could. Eliminating those long commutes and having the flexibility to fit our personal life around the office rather than the other way around. Some employers may insist people come back in person, and some workers may just refuse. Although, the work-from-home camp may be able to delay their sacrifices for a few more months, as the list of companies delaying plans to bring workers back to physical offices is growing. But in between is where a negotiation may be taking place. After all, there's always a price for everything, right? And some surveys are starting to set the market price in the bid and the ask for returning to the office. The insurance company Breeze did an online survey showing two-thirds of those whose jobs could be done from home would accept a pay cut of 5%. 
And another survey done by Polefish pointed to 15% of people who were willing to take a much deeper cut, as much as a quarter of their pay or all of their paid time off. But maybe the most disturbing result was what else people would give up to work from home. Giving up Netflix or social media for a year isn't so shocking. It could do some of us some good after all. But more troubling is the third of respondents who said that they would give up the right to vote in all future national and local elections if they could just work from home forever. So I'll leave it up to you to think about whether that's more about the pain of community or about how deeply we are discounting our role in choosing our leaders. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.